you know, speaking of the American Civil War, I don't quite understand why. It just seemed to be a time where a lot of gambling went on. And uh, something to do with the generals, and it has something to do with the nature of the events. But there's just a, a lot of stuff happened in the Civil War, including just, you know, one of the sections in the book, uh, as you know, is called the, the Roll of Luck, where just incredible lucky events occurred. And so the, there's a Civil War event, which was very significant in history, which was just based on luck, pure luck. Hi, and welcome. It's Runchex, and you're listening to my podcast where I explore the topics around what it takes to become a great poker player with various interesting people from in and around poker industry. Today, my guest is Mason Malmuth. He is the founder of 2 Plus 2 Publishing, author of many books, and in many ways, one of the key figures in the poker world. He has a new book out. It's a history book, where he looks at historical events through a lens of gambling. And it's a very enjoyable read. Now, this is a wide-ranging conversation where we talk about gambling in general, discuss some stories from the book, and talk about poker, what makes a good game, what defines a good player. We talk about the rake, about regulation, poker room politics, tournament structures, and so much more. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. Thank you for coming on. I, I'm really happy that, uh, you know, that we're going to have this conversation. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk about our new book. Yeah, absolutely, because that's actually the reason why I reached out to you, because uh, as soon as I read the title and the premise of the book, I thought, wow, first of all, I never heard anybody uh, look at the history from this lens before. It's such a fascinating topic, such an interesting idea. So maybe let's actually start talking about the book. And then we will uh, transition to other topics, all poker-related, of course. Well, in 1987, I published, uh, I self-published a book called uh, Gambling Theory and Other Topics. And in the last section of that book, which was called Gambling Fantasy, I had a little bit of this history stuff where uh, I looked at... Uh, some things I knew about history and, and could see where there were where gambles were taking place. And so for all this time, it's a, it's a topic that I've thought on and off about. Uh, I happen to like to read history. So as I would read history, occasionally every now and then I would see something that would qualify as either a gamble or at least it exhibited some aspect of gambling. So I guess about a year and a half ago, I finally decided, I guess it's 30 years later, I finally decided I wanted to do a book. Of course, I still didn't know enough history. So I put a call out on our website and a man named Antonio Carrasco answered. Uh, I was looking for somebody who understood, you know, gambling and poker to some degree at least, and also, was a historian. Well, just by luck, I found the perfect guy. So I now had a historian to work with. So I sent him an outline of what I had in mind. And he got back to me and he said, well, this all sounds good, except that you have too much from North America and basically most of the stuff is from the last 200 years. So he then sent me uh, 
a list of about uh, 30 topics to read about, which I could get on the internet and start reading. And we began to add more and more topics in. And I wrote, you know, some of the chapters and, and he wrote some of the chapters and then we'd go over them. And the, the key is, is, is really not so much the, the history, even though that makes it interesting, but uh, where the aspects of uh, uh, gambling took place. And in the first uh, section of the book, we have to define what we're doing. So we define two things. First, we define gambling. And gambling is a, a topic that we all talk about, but is never really defined very well. So we define gambling as an endeavor or an event that has uh, two qualities. Uh, first, it has an expectation. And second, it has a, a variance or, or square root of variance, a standard deviation, we use that too. And the key is that the variance has to be large relative to the expectation. So if, let's say you're playing poker, and just to throw some simple numbers out, you're making $10 an hour, but you have a standard deviation of $100. Well, that means that if you keep doing this, you're, you're playing with a positive expectation, but you can't really predict very well where you're going to finish because of, because of the variance. So, so therefore, you're gambling. On the other hand, if you reverse those numbers and your expectation was 100, but the standard deviation was 10, now you would not be gambling because now you can predict with a fair amount of certainty how you're going to finish. Now, there's a little interesting aspect of this. It comes into play in one of the chapters, and it's the idea that uh, if you keep gambling, well, statistically, the, the standard deviation is proportional to the uh, square root of the number of events, which could be poker hands that you play. And the expectation is proportional to the number of poker number of events or poker hands you play. And and in simpler language, what that means is that over time, the expectation will begin to uh, dominate. And and one of the interesting things from that is that I can go play poker, and I can and so I go down to my my favorite poker room, which here in Las Vegas is the Bellagio. So I, I go there and I, and I play for a few hours. Well, I'm, I'm gambling. I mean, my re results can be all over the place. But if I keep doing this every night, night after night after night, eventually I'm not gambling anymore because my expectation uh, now dominates. So, so that, that's a little bit of the way th that this works. And then we brought in another idea, which first appeared in my gambling theory book. In fact, let me ask you, ask you this question. You go to a craps table and you bet uh, $1 a roll, and you do that, let's say, for 10,000 rolls. Now, the very next roll, you bet a million dollars. How many times have you rolled the dice? Right, yeah. Yeah, I remember that part because I did read your book, by the yeah. way, even though on the short notice. But uh, yeah, the idea is that the statistician would say that you, you rolled uh, once. For all right. appearance and purposes, right? Whereas, yes. you know, from another perspective, you you rolled 
10,001 time? Well, the first 10,000 rolls, I picked up a statistical term from the United States Census Bureau where, where I worked at years ago. And, and that would be called uh, self-weighting. So the first 10,000 rolls are, are what we call self-weighting sample. Then once you add that million-dollar roll in, it's now become non-self-weighting. And we used to try to design statistical surveys so they were self-weighting. And the reason for that was it reduced the variance. Now, that's an issue poker players deal with all the time, trying to reduce the variance. And when you make it non-self-weighting, and this example shows it, Instead of having a sample size of 10,001, you really only have a sample size of one. You're starting to increase the variance. And what's important here is the right way to gamble is non-self-weighting. In other words, you don't bet every football game. You bet those games where you think the bookie's line is off by enough to where you have an edge. You know, In other words, you can cover the bookie's feet and you still have an edge. And, and the larger your edge is, the more you bet. The same is true with, with poker. If you had a full table of poker players, you don't play every hand. You only play a selective number of hands. And the stronger your hand is, the more uh, aggressively you play it. So th that led to uh, the idea of non-self-weighting strategies as being the right way to gamble. So those two ideas of... Uh, exactly what gambling is, specifically that the, the short-term luck factor is large compared to the expected outcome. And, and the idea of non-self-weighting strategies, that's the basis behind this book. So we're looking at all sorts of events of history. Some of them are positive, and some were negative. Hmm. We have a bunch of foolish gambles in the book. Yeah. And we also have a section called Poker Place. Yeah. And even in some of the, I don't remember which section that is in, but I think in the expert gambles, right? Or the expert, uh, yeah, yes. expert gambles. That, that was the section. Even some of the gambles that you described, you classify them as good sort of decisions, yet some of them still didn't work out which right. is an important thing to obviously always mention that right. know, one of the uh, expert gambles that did not work out was in world war one was was the german u-boat uh, fleet they were for political reasons a lot of it dealing with the united states because the united states was not in the in the war they, they kind of quit the the u-boat attacks but as the war went on, Germany was starting to struggle, so they made a decision to, to uh, resume the U-boat attacks. And they lost the war, so you could say, well, that decision failed. But, but in our opinion, it was still an expert decision because it gave them a chance to win when they really had no chance before that. So, so that that would be uh, one of the examples you're talking about. Yeah. And to me, the interesting thing that I took away from this book is something that I haven't really considered much before. Because obviously, like, if we just think about these events in history, 
all events can be viewed from a lens of gambling if we define gambling as you know with the variance is higher than the expected uh, outcome right so well uh, well it's a, it's, it's a relative number in other words yeah. the uh, statisticians the thing they really study is the standard deviation but and there are formulas for, for this and the standard deviation turns out to be the square root of the variance but but the idea is is just what you said when the variance or standard deviation is large compared to what your expectation is and so, you know some of the events in the book that's kind of an opinion mm-hmm. but uh that, that that's that's basically the, the idea behind gambling yeah so the surprising idea to me was or not surprising but you know just something that i i quite appreciated was the idea that sometimes it makes sense to gamble to increase the variance so that your chances of winning go from pretty much zero to something way higher than zero even though you That's increase right. the variance but you know it it sort of was counterintuitive you know something that i haven't thought much about before and with the, some of the examples that he illustrated especially in the war situations where the battle is lost if you just pursue the normal strategy but if you deviate and sort of gamble on the fact that your opponent is not going to adapt properly all of a sudden your chances of winning go way up right when when uh you can increase the if you're a losing player and this could be a poker player or, or a general or uh, someone in the business field but if you're losing and it's important to win by increasing the variance even though you may lower your expectation you can actually increase your chances of having a winning outcome over the the, the play of the event You won't uh, now if you keep repeating the event over and over again. In the long run, you'll have worse results. But if you're fighting a battle, you only have you you don't have the opportunity to repeat the the event over and over again. You're doing it just this one time. So, you know, I, I can give a poker example because uh, I, I bet almost everybody who's listening to the show has seen this, and in many cases have done it themselves. You'll see a player who's losing for the night. And uh, actually, this comes out, out of my psychology book, but it's important to him to be a winner for the night. And he only has a little bit of time left. Well, well what does he do? He, he starts to play more aggressively. He starts to play more hands. And he's actually lowering his expectations. However, he's increasing his probability of leaving that one session as a winner. And so th- this is something that, that comes up at the end of the book. You get these events that, boy, when you first look at them, they just don't make much sense. But but they were right because it meant that instead of being sure to lose, you had a chance to win. Yeah. Yeah, and especially like, because as you said, in a battle, for example, you only have this one event. So it doesn't really matter that you lower your overall expected value. What matters is that all of a sudden you're not just having an expectation to lose every time, that you're actually opening yourself up to a chance. A good example of this, which appears in the book, uh, 
And uh, the, this chapter was, was mostly put together by my co-author, was the, the story of Francisco Pizarro. He's down in South America, and he's got an army, I think it's 120 conquistadors, maybe it's 180 is the number. But, he, but he's up against 20,000 Incas. I mean, so he standard strategy is one of two choices. One, he could try to fight, which he has no chance. And the other is he could try to run, which he'll have very little chance. So what do you do? He came up with a third strategy, which was a huge gamble. And uh, it would probably not work most of the time, but it happened to work the, the, the time uh, he, he executed and basically, uh, what that strategy was, he invited, he sent his emissaries out to the Inca king, who was leading the army, and invited him in for a friendly meeting. And, of course, I guess the, the Incas didn't understand how treacherous uh, the Spaniards could be. <laughs> so the Inca king came in, and uh, the idea was to capture the Inca king. And then once you captured him, the Inca army wouldn't have a leader anymore. And uh, that's what they did. They, they, they attacked the, the Inca king, and uh, he came in with a couple of thousand soldiers. But as a gesture of goodwill, he, they were disarmed. So the Spanish, even though they were much smaller numbers, had superior weapons. So they, they attacked them, they captured the king, and the, the whole Inca army ended up dissolving and running away. So that's how you take, it was a complete gamble. It probably would not work most of the time, but it gave them a chance to, to uh, survive and, and win. Yeah, exactly. Because otherwise they have no chance at all right. against the 20,000 uh, 20, strong. And even, you know, those 2,000 people, 2,000 Incas that came came together with the king, the part that they came unarmed, it's sort of luck you know sure uh, you know but that's that's part of the gambling you're hoping for a positive outcome you're you're hoping either for because many many of the events described in your book were to do with the weather which is interesting which obviously influenced a lot of the military events throughout the history uh, and another example of the same thing that we're talking about right now with the incas was also that uh, event that you described of general lee uh, fighting um, the defensive battle. I don't remember which was the city, Richmond or, or something. Right, where it was the city of Richmond in, in uh, the state of Virginia, and which is part of, you know, which was part of the, it was the capital of the Southern Confederacy. And I can, one of the sections in the book is called Poker Place. <clears throat> and I consider, uh, Robert E. Lee to be the greatest poker player that ever lived. He's a little bit out of favor today because of all the going-ons. You know, he was leading the army to defend slavery and so on. But as a strategist, I don't think there's anybody better. And the irony of it is I don't think he ever played poker. I know that he was negative towards anything gambling. But... Uh, in the year eight, the, 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 the American Civil War lasted uh, from 1861 to 1865. And it was a, an all-consuming war. There was uh, 600,000 people killed, 
huge number of additional casualties. And but early in the in the Civil War, 1862, the North or the Union had a very large army, and they were over 100,000 men, that, and they had moved to outside the city of Richmond. And Lee had an army of about 60,000 men, and he had to defend the city of Richmond. Well, in addition to having a larger army, the Northern Army was probably better trained, and, and they were certainly better equipped. They were better fed. They were just better everything. So if Lee fights like he's supposed to, which would be to set up defensive lines and uh, try to re resist the incoming army, he'll, he'll slowly be crushed. So he comes up with a battle plan based on a, a semi-bluff. And uh, I guess David Sklansky was the first person to define what a semi-bluff is, but most poker players are well aware of it. And what he what they did was they noticed that one wing of the Union Army was on the other side of, I think it's the Chickahominy River. I think that was the name of the river. And they were a little bit separated from the rest of the army. So what he did was he took most of his army, swung them around to the side and attacked that wing. And then in front of the city of Richmond, he left a small number of troops. And their job was to just make as much noise as possible. So he had them marching around and shooting their guns. And, uh, and they were instructed, you know, not to fight. And if the Union, all the, the Union Army, which was commanded by a man named George McClellan, and this is the key to it, George McClellan was very conservative. So Lee recognized this. So, but if McClellan would have moved the Union Army forward, they would have captured the city of Richmond easily and the war had been over. But what happens is McClellan starts getting uh, casualty reports from this one side of his army. He gets no casualty reports from the rest of the army. Now, the reason it's a semi-bluff is if they're able to run through the wing of the army, this is the Lee's army, he's able to run through the McClellan's army, and then continues on to the rest of the army, they actually might win the whole battle. There's only a small chance of that happening. So what they're really hoping is that McClellan uh, folds his hand and retreats. And that's exactly what, what happened. McClellan became convinced that he was being attacked by overwhelming numbers on all sides, even though he only had casualty reports from one part of his army, and retreated. And that saved the city of Richmond and ended up prolonging uh, the American Civil War for, I guess, three more years. And mm. so we have three chapters on him in the book. Uh, he did another semi-bluff at another battle, and, he, and, and in, a, in a third battle, he did an outright bluff. And uh, so we view him as the, at least I do, as the greatest American gambler, maybe probably the greatest gambler of all time. Mm. It's interesting that he also mentioned that he himself viewed uh, gambling as a vice and he was against gambling as such. That's my understanding. And I think it's important to... I actually want to hear your thoughts because you've been in and around gambling industry for, for such a long time. And 
it's obvious that in some other industries, people would benefit greatly from a better understanding of what gambling is and how to analyze decisions from a perspective of the standard deviation, the expected value, so sort of more rationally. Whereas that doesn't seem to happen that much. People view gambling as this bad thing and it has nothing to do with business. It has nothing to do with uh politics, it has nothing to do with this and that. Whereas if we think about it, everything has some sort of element of gambling at some point. Well, per perhaps, but I, I think most things really don't. I think it's these gambling events tend to be, tend to be kind of rare. Uh, I know on our website, when I first announced wanted to do a book like this, people... Several people posted I, I, that I had to write about D-Day, you know, in World War II, and what a big gamble that was. But in our opinion, it wasn't a gamble at all. It was something that was very well thought out, and it was very well executed. And they, they knew it would be well executed. I mean, they had some problems, but to, to me, it didn't have a, a large enough variance compared to the expectation to count as a gambling event. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's often true in uh, all sorts of things. Now, in the gambling business, this goes back, I think, you know, to the beginning of casinos, is, is the idea that they'd like to keep the people dumb so that people will uh, make terrible mistakes. And, and a very good example of that is if you go to a Baccarat pit, you'll see these people... Uh, writing down whether it was, you know, what the order of uh, the banker and the player winning. And of course, that has, and, and you see that roulette too, they'll, 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 they'll keep track of whether it was red or black. And, and of course, that has basically nothing, nothing to do with the game. And, and that brings you to the idea that uh, probability theory can be very counterintuitive. And so, between these things, the, the casinos did a pretty good job of keeping their customers dumb. And, and what's ironic about it, they even kept a lot of their employees dumb. I said, the employees believed this stuff. They, they would never be able to teach the customers that wasn't right. And so I think that answers part of, of what you just asked. Mm -hmm. Well, the probability is a different sort of thing, though, because what I was referring to, and for example, your your mention of the D-Day not being a gamble, which I agree with your assessment that you know they had it well thought through and et cetera, et cetera. But the element that is important there is to to analyze a decision as if, for example, a decision of launching the offensive from a lens of what is going to be the standard deviation here. So as, as if how much risk do we have and what are the expected outcomes? And Well, I, I think the answer to that is just opinion. If your opinion is that the standard deviation is small, which was, was my opinion, looking at that in hindsight, it would not be a gamble. If, if you look at the same data 
and you feel the standard deviation is higher, then, then it becomes a gamble. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's my point exactly. That you know, it would benefit a lot of people, especially in the business world, because I, I feel like in the military world, people are more accustomed to analyzing the expected outcomes and estimating the risk a bit better. You know, and in the business world, a lot of people know that on paper you're supposed to quantify all the risks and quantify all the outcomes, but that not always happens. Well, we're actually getting into uh, psychology stuff, but most people live in the real world. And in the real world, things can get very big. And things can also get very small and even go negative. For example, uh, if you're a successful poker player, you you can build up a very big bankroll. You're a bad poker player, your bankroll can go to zero and you borrow money, it can even become negative. But when you start looking at risks and that sort of thing, you now have entered the probabilistic world. And in that world, you can only go from zero to one, where zero means that there's no probability of something happening. And one means it, ha- it absolutely must happen. And the probabilistic world uh, can be very tricky for a lot of people. Uh, again, I just mentioned, but probability theory can, can be very counter, counterintuitive. I'll just give you a, a simple example. This is in my psychology book. But when I play poker, people know I'm supposed to be some sort of mathematician. And every now and this has happened to me several times. I've been in the game where somebody has been dealt, uh, this is Hold'em, somebody has been dealt aces two hands in a row. And they'll ask me, what's the probability of being dealt aces two hands in a row? Well, let's see how you, how you do on this. Uh, the odds of being dealt aces once is 220 to 1. So what's the odds of being dealt aces two hands in a row? Moise. Mm, okay, I was about to blurt something out, but... Oh, why don't you? Because... <laughs> Let's see what it is. Because the, the probability of getting aces twice in a row is the same as probability of having two hand combinations, specific hand combinations being dealt. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's aces and aces. It's the same as aces well, and, 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 for example, and kings. Well, it, it, it's a, that, that, that's correct, but it's really a trick question. If you play Hold'em, what's the probability you'll be dealt aces? one you're going to sit there and play so eventually you'll be dealt aces so now the probability of it being dealt aces on the very next hand is 220 to 1 on the other hand if i said to you what's the probability of being dealt aces on these two specific hands then it's all right like 46 or 47,000 to 1 mm-hmm. and that's just an example of how these things are, are counterintuitive to people you have these events that are, are in reality much more common than uh, they realize because they didn't start counting until the first, until after the first event happened. And I, I think this, these kind of stuff, my cat's on the desk, is about to knock everything over. <laughs> I, think, I, I think that this type of stuff uh, 
confuses people in the business world, and that's why you occasionally see these these terrible mistakes. They they think that things are much less likely to happen than than they do, and uh, so just going back to poker, you know, people people say, well, I had three bad beats in, you know, in an hour. They really only had two bad beats in an hour because they didn't start counting until after the first bad beat. And the probability of the first bad beat happening eventually is a certainty. So it doesn't, that kind of stuff doesn't have much play in the uh, history book, but in the psychology of poker area, we have this cat who moved into the office about three years ago. And he likes to be petted all the time. You know, most cats want you to leave him alone. I like the fact that he just moved in. And the way you put it is interesting. But anyway, these are the things that confuse people. And they unless you have a little bit of a background in this stuff or worked with, with this stuff, uh, people, people make mistakes. Mm-hmm. And these mistakes can be, at times, very, very significant. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's the, you know, the whole problem of selection bias and when do we start paying attention to things. It, it happens in so many so many fields and so many situations because as you mentioned you know the bad beat is it's a certainty that it's going to happen right now when it happens and then you start counting well you know you're just selecting the arbitrary point at which you start counting and and same goes for right and what makes you know aces twice in a row more special than aces and then seven deuce in a row we don't care about, oh, I got aces and I got seven deuce. That doesn't register as something extraordinary to us. But right. it's the same thing as having aces and aces. You know, it's just, it shouldn't be. But as humans, we are so so good at recognizing the patterns, right? So we, we know all aces and aces again. Oh, my God. You know, or or the best is like, oh, I just had exactly the same cards. I had, I had a... I don't know, a queen of hearts, the hand before, isn't it incredible? No, it's not. Well, it would be incredible, or, or at least very, very unlikely. unlikely. <laughs> Can't get rid of them. It would be incredible or, or very unlikely if you said, what are my chances of this happening on like the next two hands? In other words, you've named specific hands. Mm-hmm. But if you wait and don't start counting until after it happens once, it's, it's a lot different. Mm-hmm. It, it's just one of the many ways that gambling confuses people. And the casinos kind of like that because it, it would encourage people to gamble and uh, they wouldn't understand what, what was happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember being introduced to people who I was told well, this is so-and-so, and he's a great craps player. <laughs> you know, there, unless he's cheating or something, there there are no great craps players. And, uh, but, you know, this was a guy, I, I guess he probably had a, a couple of lucky runs in his life, so. 
and and and, that, and that's the key to a lot, a lot of this stuff is that uh, the fluctuations can be very high, and the time span that the, the player is participating in it is short, so that they, they can get uh, they can get fooled by by the uh, short term luck factor. Mm-hmm. And that happens in, in poker. It happens in other gambling games. And it happens in history. Let's stay on this topic a bit. Um, because, of course, the lack, luck is such a huge factor, and especially short-term, huge factor. When we talk about the best players in poker, how do we define who are the best players? What's your opinion on that? Well, it has to be the people who've had uh, very good long-term results. You know, just getting away from that, there are there's some people who won the lottery twice. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, are they good lottery players? I mean, it's just it's just it's just what 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 luck does to you. Mm-hmm. But well, that's that's why see that's why I'm asking this question because I thought about it a great deal lately myself, right? Because a lot of people tend to like, oh, name the five top players right now in PLO cash games or something like that. And I actually thought about it. I thought like, okay, well, how do we define it? Do we take longevity as a, you know, the, the, the span of, let's say, number of hands played and the results over a number of hands as a defining factor? The problem with that is the game evolves. You know, if you played a million or 10 million hands over the, period of the last 20 years well the, the you know what the the hands that you played this year are very different to the hands you played 10 years ago the game yeah, evolved. That's, that's, that's absolutely correct the way to uh i'm gonna now argue you can't do it the the, the way to determine the uh well, well there is a way maybe the the, the way to determine the well, it, um, I'm getting ahead of myself, but in the world of statistics, there's classical statistics and there's what we call Bayesian statistics. Now, I'm not a real expert here, but Bayesian statistics is the idea that you can take in other information. So let's say the argument is who, who's a better poker player, you or I? So to see that, from a classical standpoint, we'd have to each play a huge number of hands. And re- remember, as more and more hands you play, the, the, the expectation begins to dominate the short-term luck factor. So if after a huge number of hands, I've done a little better than you, you could argue that, that, that maybe I'm the better player. Of course, you could also say, well, the games have changed so much. So maybe over this time period, you better you might have been the better player, but not necessarily a better player today. Now, the other way to look at this is to find someone with pretty good results and then try to take in what other information there is. Uh, has he had these results against other players who were tough? Uh, has anybody talked to him? Has he released information about how he plays? And, and so on. And then you can look at this other information and you can say, wow, that, that's really good. You, you know, a good example, this came up on, on our website a few years ago, and I forget the guy's name. 
but he won the World Series of Poker. And on the last hand in an interview, he said something like, uh, my mental coach told me I, I needed to, to visualize that a deuce would come on the end. And I forgot to do that. Well, you hear that. You can't help but think that this guy was just probably very lucky. Uh, so there was an example of some of somebody releasing some information, which clearly didn't make any sense. Uh, on the on the other hand, if you got well, a, a real good example was Dan Harrington, and, and this goes back to two thousand and three when the Harrington book, first Harrington book came out. But he detailed in, in there, you know, how he played and and what he looked for and and things he did and so on. And it was very clear that for the games at that time, that this was really a superior strategy. Mm-hmm. So you could say very, very clearly, well, the, well, Dan Harrington had just made the, uh, you know, the final table of the World Series of Poker in 2003 and 2004, and he was also a former World Series of Poker champion. So you can say, based on his results, plus this other information that's come along, that this person was a very, very strong poker player. Mm-hmm. And and clearly, it's probably a, at least that, that he's retired now. But but clearly, you know, one of the very best poker players at that time. So 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 that that's the way you'd have to look at it. So th- to answer your question, I would try to find people who, let's say, the last year or two that that's fairly recent, who had very good results, and then see what other information there is about that is available about how they play and what they know about poker and so on. Mm-hmm. And if that information is available, it, it, it might allow you to either include him into the group of really being a top player or, or or make you think that maybe he was a little bit more lucky. Right, right. Well, that's the thing, though. We can... Because I think the problem is... Well, it's not really a problem. It's just a peculiarity of, of the whole situation is that we can define who the top players are. But to rank them... I don't believe that's that's possible because first of all, there are so many other aspects into whatever metric we choose. If we choose to focus or zoom in on their results, uh, the expected results, if somehow we can quantify that, there are so many other things that go into that equation as things like game selection, right? Because that's going to have a huge influence on on your on your numbers. Well, you you could argue though that game selection is part of the poker skill. Oh, absolutely. But then yeah. you know, if we're trying to quantify who is a better player, player A or player B, so what do we try to quantify exactly? Do we try to quantify who is a better, who is better at the business of poker, or who is a more skilled player? You know, and that's something that not many people talk about because I always get confused when somebody asks me, "Well, name top five or top three. Well, it, it, the loss? It, it's more complex than that. Uh, let's say uh, I'm an expert at uh, using uh, game theory type strategies. And you're an expert at using exploitive type strategies. Who's the better player? In certain situations, I would be the better player because it would be very difficult to exploit certain type of opponents. In other situations, the exploited player, especially if, if, if there's a bad player in the game, the exploited player is going to do much better. 
yet the exploitive player cannot beat the game theory player. So, and then you add on top of that the short-term luck factor. It's really a, I guess it's just something interesting to speculate about. But mm. no, no it's answer it's absolutely interesting. But, you know, to quantify it, because let's take your example even further, right? We have a GTO player and an exploitative player. And then we add the factor of game selection in it. But let's not forget that the exploitative player is going to get into better games because the GTO player, this little whisk kid with glasses and a, and a, you know, a hoodie and, and whatnot, is not, is not going to have the doors open if we're talking about the cash games. He's not going to get the invitation. Unless, unless the uh, little whiz kid is playing in like extremely high limit games where virtually everybody is extremely good. Then, then it would reverse. So it's, uh, I guess, the way to, the way another way to put it is: Would you rather be an exploitive expert or a GTO expert? So it's a little different question. Mm -hmm. But in my opinion, you'd much rather be the exploitive expert. Now, now you'd concentrate on game selection. Maybe you don't play as big. Because in the bigger games, the players are better. But it, but overall, as long as the games are still relatively good, you're going to win more money. Mm -hmm. uh, on the other hand, if it's important to you to, to be seen in the highest stakes games against the toughest players, then you would not want to be the exploited player. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's exactly the key issue here because it boils down to what drives you. What, yeah. Why are you playing? Because everybody has a different reason. Some people are in there in, in for the money. Some people are in it for the fun, and some some are in it to prove to the world that hey, I'm I'm the best. I know. Before the show, we talked a little bit about uh, you know you know the the business of poker, but but this is an example I think where things have gone wrong in poker. Uh, on on the internet people began to realize you could play more hands. This goes back a lot of years. And then they realized you could multi-table. And on our website, this is years ago, it was, on a, it was an article. I guess it was, I think it was an article submitted to us, which we published in our, we have a magazine on our website. Mm -hmm. we, we put out uh, once a month. And the article basically said something like, it was directed at David Sklansky and myself. It said, you guys are trying to explain the best possible way to, to play poker hand. And you do that so you can make the most money you can on poker hand. I'm going to play 100 times more hands than you are, make a lot less on each of them. I'm going to use a simple algorithmic type strategy. I'm going to play 15... 20 games at one time on the internet. And at the end of the year, I make more money than you do. Even though you understand how to play poker a lot better than I do. It's very, very uh, interesting. Well, here comes our cat again. Hmm. <laughs> All right, you get petted now. So th th these are our issues that, that, that ha have to be dealt with. Now, one of the things that a lot of these internet poker sites have realized is the multi-tabling is now long-term bad. So they, they liked it at first because they created 
instead of getting, you know, one rake from you, they got 20 rakes from you. Now, now they realize uh, th that, that it's destroying a lot of the games. Yeah, what are we going to do with you? So let's let's zoom in on that a bit because obviously there's there's been quite a change uh, lately. If we look at Poker Stars, for example, they limited the number of tables that you can play to four. I think that's a good, that's a good decision. Mm. So why do you? What's in your opinion the biggest problem that multi-tabling poses? Well, again, this goes back to the psychology of poker. Uh, and, and this goes back to stuff in my psychology book, but uh, one of the things players would like to do is get rid of the variance. They would like to play with a, at least a very small variance or, or put, put in simpler terms, they'd like there not to be much of a luck factor. And uh, so what they began to realize was instead of playing one 10-20 game, they could play 10-1-2 games. And if everything was equal, they would have the same win rate over the 10-1-2 games as they would over the one 10-20 game. But they now need a bankroll uh, one-tenth the size. And that's because all hands are played independently. So what that did was it brought professional type players into very small stakes games. It used to be if you walked into a card room or when the internet sites began, if you went to a small limit game and you had basically no pros playing, the pros were all in the higher games. And uh, that was very good because it allowed, plus they have a lot lower rakes now too, but but it, it allowed new players to learn something about the game and survive and become, at least some of them would become poker players. But because of the multi-tabling, the pros began to move down in stakes and they also began to move to these simpler algorithmic strategies. So they would give up some of their win rate per hand, but play so many more hands that in a sense they'd make more money. And the extreme case of this was when these sites like, uh, I mean, this is not a little bit of another issue, but, but you know, poker stars used to have stuff where if you played X number of hands, you, you, you got bonus money. And you ended up with people who would play a huge number of hands because of all the multi-tabling. And they were just trying to break even as a player or, or maybe just lose a little bit. But then the bonus money gave them a nice income for the year. And that's not what you want in poker because now when a, a recreational type player would show up and again, the game, he, he, even though it was small stakes, he, he was against a whole bunch of players who were actually quite good. And of course, this way of playing with these simpler algorithmic strategies made the games less fun for the recreational players. 
You know, they only played good. His opponents only played very good hands. Mm-hmm. And and uh, in the long run, I think that hurt that hurt poker a great deal. So, so the idea that that the poker sites they realize this, and so they're 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 cutting back on the amount of multi tabling. I think it's very good. And if you can force, I mean, if you wave a magic wand, what you'd want to do is you you would want to force these. Uh, professional type players, all of them out of those, these very small games, you know, make them play less games, but at higher stakes. And then as players in the smaller games, you know, some of them did well, perhaps by luck, they would go take shots at, at the higher games. And that's the way the poker ecosystem used to be. And uh, that's a lot of that's lost today. Mm-hmm. Well, that's probably and, and also... Yeah, go ahead. Just, just go on. Then to make it worse, uh, no limit holding became the most popular game, and that that gives these uh, expert players a, a little even bigger. Th- their edge becomes becomes too big over these recreational players, so the games start to choke themselves off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Um, what well, I wanted to zoom in a bit on what you were saying uh for example poker stars getting rid of the well supernova elite and and that type of reward system so you're i understand are quite in favor of that um them reducing the number of tables available i think we both agree that that's a great thing um and for the good of the industry you know currently they are working on trying to make the games a bit more fun by experimenting with introducing antis into the games and and doing all such things. But what I'm seeing in the industry, and I want to hear your opinion on what's going on, but from what I see is, for example, poker stars are trying to innovate in some ways. They're getting a lot of resistance from the professional poker players because obviously we are always resistant to change and any change is bad and we always perceive that oh these guys have their monetary motives motives behind it they just want to increase the rate they want to increase their profit so many of us are not willing to listen to the propositions and at the same time we see that poker stars themselves are facing quite a lot of pressure from loosely regulated or not regulated sites which are stealing a lot of the business so the company itself has to fight against some of the operators that are operating under a questionable license and while fighting against these competitors they also are trying to preserve the or improve the ecosystem of of poker by changing something it seems like a very tough Strategy, very tough situation for a site like Poker Stars at the moment. Okay, let's. Uh, I, th- I think you have a couple of different issues there. Uh, let's try to take them one at a time. The first question is, what are the char- what's the characteristic that an ideal poker game would have? Well, one of the characteristics, and this will sound a little bit vague, is a what I call a proper balance of luck and skill. And what that means is uh, there's enough luck in the game so the recreational players will have some winning nights. They'll they'll keep them coming back. And there's enough skill in the game so that the uh, 
more expert type players after at the end of the year or six months or whatever the time period it is, we'll be pretty sure that there'll be winners. And if you get that out of balance, uh, the, the games will have trouble. And, and with no limit holding, it got out of balance towards the skill side. No limit. Uh, so I think it was an, an unfortunate thing. It was actually good for our company because we got to put out no limit holding books. But no limit holding as a tournament game works pretty well. And that's because the stakes every now and then go up. And then every time you raise the stakes, you, you introduce uh, some more luck into the game. So that, that, that creates a reasonably good balance of, of luck and skill. Of course, if you raise the stakes like every two minutes, you probably have too much luck in it. And if you would only raise the stakes like once every five or six hours, you probably don't have enough luck in it. But no limit hold'em tournaments work pretty well. And since that was the game that was being featured on TV, people began to want to play No Limit Hold'em as a cash game. Well, also in, in the tournaments, they add annies to it, which increases the luck factor. So, And in the cash games, you just had two blinds. And people could, could make, uh, you know, larger buy-ins. And what happened there was the, the balance of luck and skill got completely out of whack in favor of the skill. So if you're an expert no-limit hold'em player and you can play with a couple of bad players in, in your game, you would never want to change it because you just have too big of an edge and you'll have very few you know, losing days and nights and so on. But what happens is, and I, I think this, this is exactly what happened, was these the recreational players just all got wiped out. And that was making the games tougher and tougher over time. And when that happens, the expert players, they're not really expert anymore because you only are expert relative to your uh, competition. So the expert players just became sort of the regular type players mm-hmm. with uh, at best a very small edge and then they began to struggle. Now there's other issues here. One we've mentioned already is the rake. I mean, I mean, my, my opinion, a lot of the bonuses should be done away with, but and the rake should be lower. And uh, but it's been sort of shown pretty pretty conclusively that a lot of players like bonuses. You know, that's why. Uh, uh, Jackpot poker games became popular, where people would get aces full beat, and they would, uh, you know, win a jackpot. That was an attraction to, to the game. I know in casino games, uh, this is based most more on observation and a few conversations I've had with people. When the edge gets, when the house edge gets much above one and a half percent, players people quit playing unless there's a jackpot. The jackpot's added to the game that they can go to 3% a lot of times, you know, a, a house edge. So, so that's one of the things that, that attracts people. So, 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 so that's, that's 
the first issue. Uh, there's an interesting example related to the first issue, which I talk about every now and then. And, and it's this idea, again, balancing uh, luck and skill. As the stakes get higher, players tend to get better. So, you know, the best uh, 10, 20 no-limit hole-in players, are, they are usually a, a lot better than the best 2-5 uh, uh, no-limit hole-in players. And in the game of seven-card stud, which is hardly played anymore, so it's a real shame, there was something that was done that solved that problem. And it was the, the ante. In 1537 card stud, there was a $2 ante. And in 75150 stud, there was a $3 ante. Well, a $3, excuse me, there was a $15 ante. Well, a $15 ante at 75150 was the equivalent of a, of a $3 ante at, at 1530. But when you looked at the stud games, which, which used to be fairly common, the very best 1530 players were nowhere as near as good as the best 75-150 players. Stud is a, is a game where the ability to increase skill up and up and up is, is really there, much more so than, it, than in Hold'em. But what this larger ante did was it, it helped the recreational player. So by chance, and I guess evolution, the games evolved like this, and it kept the, uh, the balance, the luck and skill sort of uh, intact. In other words, at the 1530 game with a $2 ante, you, you had a certain balance of luck and skill. At the 75-150 game with the $15 ante, which was equivalent to the $3 ante at 1530, you still had that balance luck and skill, even though the skilled players were better because the higher ante helped the poor players. And what that did was it kept the, it kept the games going all the time. And then, uh, you know, the TV shows came along with, with Hold'em and, and wiped everything out. But I remember, you know, in Las Vegas, you know, Smaller limit stud games went all the time, and high stakes stud games just went all the time. They'd go around the clock. Mm. And part of the reason for that was I like to call them tourist type. A tourist type player in a small stud game didn't really play any better. Or, excuse me, the tourist type player in the large stud game didn't play any better than the tourist type player in the small stud game. The problem was in the large stud game, he was against people who were more expert than in the smaller stud game. But that was made up for by, by the ante. I'm not sure how that affects Hold'em, though. But I would suspect that adding antes to uh, Hold'em, especially at uh, higher limits, might help bring the balance of luck and skill back. On the other hand, if you're not getting any uh, recreational players into these higher, uh, higher stakes, no limit Hold'em games, it won't matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, so I think that that was the first point you brought up. The second point were these uh, kind of semi-regulated uh, or non-regulated card rooms that are coming. 
And some of them have these agents that collect the money and I don't know much about them. And then they redistribute the money if you want, I guess. And uh, probably, you know, most of them are probably fairly honest, but there's always the potential. The less regulation there is, is there's potential for things to go wrong. And my guess is things eventually, at least in one place, will go wrong. And the reason you can say that is things have gone wrong in places that were more regulated. Mm. So, you know, it, I mean, if I was trying to, to play those one of those card rooms, I wouldn't I wouldn't put a lot of money on the side, and uh, I would you know see how I did in the games. If I was winning in the games and could could withdraw without much problems. Probably would keep playing. Hmm. What do you think would benefit the industry more, having one strong operator or several strong operators? I think several strong operators. I think competition is always good. That creates innovation and, and uh, it will also help keep the rakes down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, on a, on a similar uh, sort of line, I lived in, in California in the early 1980s, and the uh, everything everything there was a time charge. Time charges there were very high. And then I, I came to Las Vegas in 1987, and the rakes and time charges in Las Vegas were, at least at that time, were much lower. And that's what everybody said, and it wasn't true. Back in California, they had what they called a prop system. Uh, prop was short for proposition player. And these were people who were basically paid by the house to, to play poker. So the amount of money that was collected off a table that the house would take was virtually about the same that the amount of money that was being collected in Las Vegas. It's just what was happening in California was some players were paying, let's say, double or triple rake, and other players were being paid to play. Mm-hmm. So these things work out in different ways, and I think that has a lot to do with uh, the competition. Right now, I think these – I really think right now that the biggest danger to these games is the rake. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a personal opinion. But the rakes have been pushed up so much that I remember when I first started playing, this was in California. And uh, at that time, only forms of draw poker were legal. But I would play uh, in a 3-6 draw poker game and pay 50 cents every 30 minutes to play. Well, at that rate, it gave me a a chance to learn something about how to play the game and, and, you know, how to become a player. Today, in, in, in similar games, they take as much as 7 or $8 out of a pot. Mm. You know, some goes to the jackpot and other prizes, and a lot goes to the house. I mean, it's, it's, just, uh, it's just killing these games. Mm. Yeah, I agree that the rake is, well, you know, s- several things. Because the biggest problem of course is that if the recreational players are gone right and what what slowly 
draws them away from the game is, well, there is less fun because the combination of skill and luck is skewed too much to skill and they stand no chance. There is no fun in losing 13 sessions in a row or 50 sessions in a row or whatever it is. There's no fun in losing one session. Well, yeah, but obviously, especially if if you get the feeling that you have no chance, then that's pretty much end of that story. Another thing that, um, you know, because in live games, I often see in some really, really big, interesting games die out just because, especially in the earlier days when people were reluctant to run it twice and they were just increasing the variance, very often the game just, instead of continuing for several years, it just dies out real quick because, well, some people get hurt really bad, real, real, real early, and uh, and that's it. But coming back to, because I went off track here, I wanted to actually address this, which I find really interesting that you mentioned that the proper game, the good game, is supposed to have a good balance between the luck and skill. And you said that No Limit Hold'em has this in the tournament setting, which I agree. And as a tournament game, it's great. But the problem that we're recently seeing is these, whatever it is, you know, sometimes 10, 15 day one rebuy opportunities for people, which skews the whole equation back to skill. Because if if you know the top professional can rebuy 10, 15 times in in tournament, you know that well, that, that that's absolutely correct. When you work the math out, it often is correct to rebuy, and uh, when you can rebuy, it allows you to use a more uh, aggressive slash reckless type strategy mm. in the hopes of accumulating chips. So, if I'm a player, I'm a recreational player, and I show up to the tournament with with one with one buy-in, and you're somebody who, who's willing to rebuy ten times. Just that gives you an edge over me. Mm-hmm. And I actually think it's so severe that uh, the recreational players who, who who play these things with, and they only and they don't really have the ability to rebuy or don't want to rebuy. Probably shouldn't be playing them. I think it's a big mistake. I think the what the tournament should do is just go to a larger entry fee and not have a rebuy. Yeah, I agree with that. Even though I don't really play tournaments, I don't enjoy the format, but I follow what's happening in that field because I feel like regardless, the new players, a lot of the new players come in first as a tournament player or to experience the rush of the tournament. And then they trickle down to the cash games and and such. So it's important to me what's happening in a tournament scene, as it should for for every cash game player. I think that's absolutely right. They see the the poker shows and they're featuring tournaments mainly, or Mm -hmm. or mostly, not not all the time, but most of them. And then uh, that's what attracts them. Yeah. And my concern is that what we're seeing right now with these multiple day one a or or day one entries rather which we both agree that that's not a good thing for poker long term but it's partly driven because of this increased competition between the major well whatever we call it the major three sites right now 
let me let me interrupt this a little bit. It used to be that you entered a tournament and and you paid a, an additional fee to enter the tournament, and then you could rebuy. When you when you made your rebuy, there was no additional fee. Now there are re-entries, and in the re-entries, I think you're paying your additional fee every time. Mm, yeah, yeah, that's that correct. makes these tournaments, at least in the short run, much more profitable for the uh, tournament uh, uh, host. Mm. I, I think that's, you know, I think that's one of the issues that's come up here is that they realize that uh, when players are, are are willing to re-entry multiple times, they they made more money. Yeah. Well, that's one part of it. And the second part, it allows them to advertise higher guarantees because now they can say, hey, our, our tournament is a million, two million, five million guarantee tournament. Not because they have so many unique players. It's just because they know that a bunch of professionals are, are going to buy in 10 times if they have to. Right. That's, that's absolutely right. And uh, anyone who knows the business, when tournaments don't hit their guarantees those tournaments usually are not offered anymore hmm. you know, they very quickly disappear or, or or at least they lower the guarantees so so the the guarantee number which sounds uh really good is is, is really a little bit false because uh Again, this gets back to, to the idea of gambling. Are is the tournament provider gambling when they offer a guarantee? Well, they have very good uh, data and evidence that they're going to meet this guarantee. So, when that's the case, there's not much of a luck factor, mm -hmm. and they're not gambling. But well, if it turns out they don't meet the guarantee, they quit offering it. Yeah, well, but nowadays you see that the guarantees keep rising and rising and rising. Every year we break a record. Every quarter, it seems like we break a record. Hey, that's the biggest guarantee ever. That's the biggest series with the biggest guarantee. All of the time, you see this in marketing. The question is, is it really a poker boom right now? Why are we seeing this increase in guarantees? Well, it's clearly because of the way that they offer the product with the multiple re-entries, et cetera, et cetera. And on top of that, if they don't hit the guarantee in some of the tournaments, and we've seen a lot of tournaments go with an overlay recently, nobody talks much about it. And the poker sites see it as a marketing expense. Well, you know, we wasted some money on advertising that, hey, we, have, we are the biggest site. We have the biggest guarantee. Well, if that's the case, that they're, they're looking at a bigger picture and they're saying, well, this is just an advertising cost. And it's benefiting our business, you know, in other ways. Yeah, you know, there's a number of things that have happened which really surprised me. I think it's just just showing my age, but but you now have these hundred thousand dollar buy-in tournaments are fairly common, and you have you know higher buy-in tournaments. I mean, I never would have thought that anything like that would have ever happened. And you have these very very wealthy people who want to play tournaments now. When I was much younger, you still you did have very very wealthy people showing up playing huge cash games. That doesn't seem to be happening as much anymore. I do hear in Macau those games exist, mm -hmm. but uh, now now they're 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 showing up and they want to play these tournaments. Mm -hmm. Well, those games still exist. They're not abundant, but I don't think they were ever abundant. They were always sort of a limited amount of them available. The unfortunate fact is that most of these games are private. 
That's true. And, and that's really bad because, again, we, we come to the same fact of would you rather play a highly regulated site where you can put a lot of trust in everything is clean and, and nice or do you put trust in the host of the game? Especially if the game is hold, held outside casino because, of course, there are plenty of private games held in the casino, which is a much safer environment. But... You know, and another thing that has happened, which has surprised me, uh, is in these very, very ultra-high buy-in tournaments, you have good tournaments players showing up. And now this is spread to lower stakes, where they sell pieces of themselves at markups. Mm-hmm. So, so you get a guy who, in some cases, is playing these things almost for free because of the markups. And... uh I don't know. Just things evolve, I guess. And yeah, well, things definitely evolved, and not only. In I'm terms not of, sure that's long-term good. Yeah, it's it's questionable. I mean, I don't know what's the answer, especially when it comes to people selling pieces. Uh, I see the benefits of that for the poker economy, and I see the drawbacks of it. Uh, the the bigger question is. How is it perceived by people getting into the game, right? Because if we think about back in the day when the poker boom started with Chris Moneymaker, for example, right? That was a- let, me, let me interrupt you there because you, you made a very good point. You said, how is it perceived by players getting in the game? In my opinion, most players who are getting in the game are unaware of this stuff. If they were aware of it, I don't know if they'd get in the game. I mean, if if you knew that that the the players at your table, you know, were all pieced out and, and doing things, that you you might not understand the implications of that. But you you would think there's got to be something wrong with that. Why am I paying this all myself? Mm-hmm. And, and they're not. So, of course, once they begin to find out about it, you know, in some cases they become poker players and then they want to take part in it as well. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, so I actually think that 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 it, it is negative. I, I think it, you know, players as as play, I think as players find out about it, they uh, it, it stops some of them from playing. Mm-hmm. And they will find out about it because I mean everybody's talking openly about it because I mean not many people perceive it as something bad, you know, especially in a tournament scene. Uh, everybody's openly talking about these things, so. Like you said, some people are getting the wake-up call pretty early. They they come in uh, for their first World Series of Poker or something like that, uh, first time, and uh, they get to hear these things. And they might necessarily, they might not understand what it implies because it's not all bad. But the way the people perceive it, because the concern is when somebody gets into the game, how long do they stay in the game? Is it like a short excursion? Okay, I play one, two tournaments. I'm disillusioned. I hate this scene, and I'm not getting back. Or are they staying staying longer? You know, because the same thing happens with, you know, when you play, let's say, these online tournaments, and you lose your one bullet, and then you check the results, and you see, oh, you know what? Everybody on the final table bought in like five or seven times. That gets you thinking. Right. You you may not understand how it works exactly and what all the implications of it are, but but you know that something just isn't quite right. 
Why are all these people buying in five or seven times? And I've only bought in once. And then I, I had dinner with, with some, a friend who came into town uh, the other night who's playing some of the World Series of Poker tournaments on the internet. And he made almost that same point to me. He said, I'm, I have to play tight and solid, and these people are playing uh, wild. And uh, because I'm only going to buy in once, they're buying in numerous times, and they have a, an edge on me. You know, they, they hit a couple of hands, they build a, a stick, a chip stack, and, you know, it makes it very tough to play. Yeah. I think people realize that. So yeah, I, I think all these things need to be looked at and, and all their implications. Yeah. And I think a lot of people are actually publicly and actively talking about this, especially people from the tournament scene. And it's, that's great to see that people are outspoken and hopefully there's going to be change because it really does seem like this is not sustainable. Especially also the deceptive fact that you, you earlier were talking about uh, how in the stud environment, for example, that the players at the higher stakes are going to be much better than the players at the lower stakes, and they don't usually drop down at the lower stakes. And with the online, with the multi-tabling, all of a sudden it became interesting to play lower stakes because you can just play 10 times amount of hands per hour. Right? But the same right. thing is happening with these tournaments. You know, If, if we think about a 1,000 euro or $1,000 tournament, Unless there was this huge guarantee and unless there was a chance to rebuy multiple times, some of the bigger pros, they would not play that tournament. It's just not worth it for them in, in terms of expectations. But because of the high guarantees, et cetera, et cetera, they're all over the place. Uh, Which, obviously, you know, I mean, from that pro's point of view, he's trying to maximize his expectations. That's what uh, a good poker player does, and that's you know what a, a knowledgeable gambler does. And the reason he's making the decisions that he's making is he believes that those are the decisions that maximize his expectation. And I think probably in most cases that, that they're correct. Mm -hmm. So th that's why they do that. If it was negative to rebuy, and in other words, uh, if it hurt your expectation to rebuy, they wouldn't do it. I remember when rebuys really first started. This is probably early 80s. People thought it was a sucker play. I remember reading articles about how foolish it was to rebuy. And because uh, that, that wasn't true. Just the opposite was true. And, you know, the, that's what happened. So I don't blame the, these pros for, 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 for doing that. Because as a, as a pro, an expert, you're supposed to maximize your expectation. But manager types, and this is, this is where we, we get back into the, how probability theory works and, and variance and, and all, all that. That's how it's counterintuitive. Manager types, in most cases, don't really understand this. The expert players, even if they don't, theoretically understand it well, at least intuitively understand it well. They know that through experience, that being willing to make rebuys, they've done better in the long run. Uh, a lot of these management types, you know, there's a reason they're management types, and that's because a lot of them are failed poker players. So they don't understand any of this. 
they understood a lot of it, I think uh, they, they would stop it. Yeah. And there's going to be some managers out there who are not going to be happy with those remarks. But <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, that, that's always the, the case. But if things need to change, and they need to change, and a lot of people are talking about it, well, yeah, there's going to be an, a lot of unhappy people. And both on both sides, there's going to be un, unhappy managers. There's going to be unhappy poker players who are going to say, hey, you're, you're trying to, you know, I just... I'm making so much money. You're trying to make take this away from me. Well, well, you're starting to touch on uh, an idea that I think is important. Uh, very often, what happens is uh, a manager type, and this just could be a, a manager of, of a poker room or maybe a tournament director or something. They'll call in a group of players to talk to, and. What I believe often happens is if you call in 10 poker players to talk to, they're going to tell you 10 different things. And and each thing, and each one is telling you what he thinks is best for him. And they really think about what's best for, for poker in the long run. And I know I've had a couple of uh, discussions with poker room managers in Las Vegas. Uh, there's a little, this is very minor for this discussion, but there's a little rule that a lot of pup rooms have right now called must-move games. Mm -hmm. I think they're, they're one of the worst things poker room managers, poker rooms can do. And, and I've had conversations with a couple of poker room managers. And they said to me, well, some of the players like the must-move game and some of the players don't like the must-move game. And in each case, I said to the manager, I said, but you're the manager. You're supposed to know what's best. And you're supposed to know what's why that is. And you don't really have any conception." And I think that those comments of mine, while they're a little bit rude, I think that actually carries over to a lot of these other things. That they call in players, and uh, they get all sorts of different points of view, and they don't really understand very well the underlying uh, a statistical theory and uh, what is actually uh, driving this stuff, and they really kind of don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So, since this other site is now advertising that they're uh, they have the biggest guarantee ever, the, the 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 original site now wants to have something that has an even bigger guarantee. The fact that they might both be hurting each other is not a, well understood. Mm -hmm. I want to touch upon this uh, must move game, though. I'm not sure that you know people want to hear this, but I personally want to talk about it because I, I have an opinion on that. Because I, I happen, I used to play, well, now with the virus situation, obviously, I'm not traveling for poker that much, but I used to play uh, quite a big portion of a year in, in the live games, including in uh, some of the card rooms in, uh, in Las Vegas. So I, I am uh, in the environment where the must move games are all of the time. but. You said you don't like them. Can you tell me why? Well, what I've seen happen over and over again, uh, we started this interview at, at, at 10 a.m. my time. And because of the virus, I changed my schedule to a day schedule. But I, I used to be someone who would sleep to, to at least noon, and then I'd be up all night. 
And what we constantly see with must move games was was the must move game would go short and break. And when it would break, you would then create a list. And my experience from playing uh, live poker for gee many years, I'll say this like 40 years, is uh, every so often, and sometimes fairly often, late at night, players would walk in from the pit and they'd want to play poker. And they have very little conception of how to play poker. And these players, would, you know, before all these must-move games, they would sit down in, in an empty seat and be major contributors to the game. Well, now because of the must-move list games, they, they break the must-move game. Now now this player walks in from the pit, and he's told there's five names ahead of him. So he, or three names ahead of him, whatever it is. So he walks out. So these poker rooms have created a situation where they're not only hurting the players who are playing, they're, they're hurting themselves because now instead of having two games, they only have one game. So they, they collect less rake. Uh, players who we, we would call big producers now can't get into games. And you, you have a, large, a lot of marginal players who are playing, who, who want to play regularly. So when a big producer sits down and loses money, these marginal players get some of it. And now they have enough money on other days to help start games and keep games going. Now, now they're running short. They can't do that. So I've always found it to be very detrimental to poker rooms. And uh, my experience is when I've tried to talk to poker room managers about this, they don't even under, they have very little understanding of what I'm even talking about. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they say to me, well, we want the must-move game to keep the main game fill, full. Well, in my opinion, the best game always has an open seat. And, uh, and the reason for that is you never know who, who will walk in, playing live anyway, who will walk in and sit down in that game. And every now and then it'll be a very, very desirable player. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, from my perspective... And I see your point, and it is bad that we lose these people coming in and they see, oh, there's no game, there's a waiting list, so I'm just not, not going to bother. That, that's a bad result, because we all know that they can end up at the blackjack yeah, table. Or, or let, me, let, me, let me tell a little story. This happened to me back in the 80s. I used to play in a Raz game that was in town. And it was usually it was a 15-30 Raz game. And I remember one night I was playing and uh, a tourist walked into the room and he went up to the floor person and he said, I want to play poker. And and the floor person said, well, the only game we have an open seat right now is Raz. He said, it's, it says, he said, it's almost word for word. He said, it's seven card stud, but it's played low and straights and flushes don't count. And the guy's answer was, I know how to play seven card stud. What's a straighter flush? <laughs> so, no. well, you, if you have your must move games, you're going to lose those people. And uh, that's, you know, it is a predatory world of the mm. poker. When you lose you those know, people, you're hurting it. You know what happens very often, I feel like, without 
the must move. Um, it's hard to get the game going, right? Because I'm usually one of the people who starts the game. Let's say we go to Bellagio. I, I like to play in the morning or the midday. So show up in Bellagio and there's a group of four or five people. We start the game. Sometimes it's four, four, four or five people, six people for a couple hours. Then the game okay. fills up. It's usually the first game is usually not that great. Everybody knows that we're just keeping it alive. That's another problem. Yeah. That's another problem, right? The thing is, we know that okay, we filled that table up, and there's going to be some players who are not really strong, but they're not really the, what you call a producer, right? Okay. But the hope is that eventually the must move is going to start, and then. The game, our main game, is going to gradually improve over time. And it's just beneficial for, for example, for myself to be in a position where I know I'm going to be in that game. Whereas if we don't have the must move, very often what can happen, and it does happen, so that mediocre game still fills up and we're all playing the mediocre table. And then a true recreational player, the guy that we were all waiting for, we knew that he's coming today. We didn't know if he's coming in the next two hours or five hours. He shows up and he's on the other table now. Now, the problem is I've been playing for five hours, keeping this crappy game alive. I want to play that game, but I can't because how am I going to, what, what am I going to be on the waiting list for the same stakes game while playing this game? That's doesn't seem right. I, I, you're confusing me. Quit my game. If, if you're in the main game and there's a must move game, you can't move to the must. No, no, no. You but that's what move. I'm saying. If there's no must move game, so there's another game starting, right? So there is no must move. If if we imagine that situation, we kept the crappy game alive, and now all of a sudden a great game starts, but I can't get in anymore, and they're not moving to my table because there's no must move. Why can't you? If, if there's no must move, why can't you transfer to the great game? Well, that's the problem you see because all the politics starts. Because as soon as that player comes in, because anyway, what happens is like I, I can describe to you a situation. For example, we would be playing, um, let's say we're playing fifty fifty hundred PLO in Bellagio, okay. right? We're playing that game. Everybody's happy. Then, uh, as some somebody special walks in, okay. The first thing that's going to happen is is going to we call the floor manager or we run to the floor manager hoping that we're not in the hand sometimes just fold the hand out right just run there we want to be first on the waiting list for every game 100 200 300 600 whatever you know so there's a lot of joking happening who gets the first seat etc cetera, etc cetera. and when a situation like this arises well then it's pretty much as as Unfortunately, it, it, it comes down to who's paying better tips to the floor manager, in a way, because who gets the favor, yeah. you know? And you yeah, see no, it in I, a lot I, of I, poker rooms. I understand exactly what you're saying. And it happens at all stakes. It's not just very, very high, high stakes games. It can happen at lower stakes games too. I've always been in favor, or I always thought that, so I think all these systems are flawed a little bit. But I, I always thought that the best system was balanced games with emphasis on the main game. In, in other words, uh, you, if you start a second game, you try to keep the same number of people in each game. So, so let's say you have a main game that fills up and it's nine-handed. And then a second game starts that's five-handed. Well, nine and five is 14. 
And if you divide that by two, you, you have seven. So now you would really like to have seven people per game. So you don't force people to transfer out of the out of the 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 the, the, the main game with where the emphasis is. But if if two of them do want to transfer to the other game, you now have seven people in each game. Mm-hmm. Now, if the two games are balanced and somebody walks in from the pit, he goes to the game that's been designated to have the emphasis. So it, it could be either game. It, it depends you know, what they decide. So somebody walks in from the pit. The two games are seven-handed. He, he, he has to go into the... He, 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 he has to go in, into, into call them game number one and game number two. Game number one has the emphasis. So he'd have to go into game number one. So, so game number one now would be eight-handed. Game number two would be seven-handed. Then if somebody else now comes in, he would have to go to game number two to keep the two games balanced. Mm-hmm. Now, you could transfer two. So if uh, – You know, if you're in a game with nine-handed and the other game is seven-handed, you could transfer and that would rebalance the games at eight-handed each. I always felt that was a better system. Part of the problem with that system is it's a little more complicated for four people. Yeah. And they have to keep track of, you know, who's on the transfer list and that stuff. And a lot of times they don't like to do that. Hmm. Well, I can't blame them, really, because they already have a lot of things to do. But at the same time, you know, that also opens up an opportunity for some people to exploit it in a way that, because, you know, you, you mentioned the example of there's five people at one table, seven people at the other table. The five people at the first or the second table are not, there's no recreational player there. So nobody wants to switch. As soon as that next guy comes up, all of a sudden everybody wants to switch. And then there's a lot of joking, a lot of shouting. And I, why did, Why does he always switch? Why does he always, you know, all of these things? You have the uh, transfer list established first. Just because there's a transfer list doesn't mean you can switch until the games become unbalanced. Right. But but you know how that works. You know, there's there's always room for jumping ahead in the list. There's always all, all of these I, things. I, it, it just I understand all that, but... I still think that's a better system than the, the must-move games they have. Because at least in this system, when the producer walks in, he can play. He He's not told there's a list and he'll leave. And from the house's point of view, they, they keep more games going. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that those two facts – Uh, outweigh the, the other issues that you're bringing up, but you're certainly right what you're saying. What's your opinion about the private games held within the casino? You know what I'm referring to, that basically you know, people would come in with their private list and they say, hey, these are the people who are playing the game. Let's say we start a game nine-handed. This is the list of five people who are going to be first on the list, and then it's an open list after that. And obviously goes without saying that list is that nobody's going to get into that game apart from these people. Well, my understanding is that according to uh, the Nevada gaming regulations, that's not legal, even though it's done. And I don't think it should be allowed. 
I mean, if there's if a poker room is offering a game, they really shouldn't make the game private. Uh, I, I mean, sometimes you you've had like a. Uh, it's tricky. I mean, sometimes you you might have like a group of people come in and they they're all on their Vegas vacation together and they want to play a poker game and they all like to play with each other. So maybe you allow it for that, but I know what you're talking about. You're talking about high stakes games where certain players are just literally not allowed to play. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's not right. So at least that's my opinion. And I also understand that's not legal either. Yeah. That's the thing. It, 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 it is not legal. Obviously they find a way to do it as a loophole. And I mean, I'm not, I've played some of those games, right? So I'm not always on the, end of not being able to get into them but i still hate the system and that being said while i hate the system i know why the demand for the private game is there because certain people only want to play in a certain kind of game they want to have fun they want to have a good conversation they want to have a few drinks they don't want uh, you know a, a lot of specific that's, that's what's going on and you know, in some of these cases, you you have a guy who, while he's playing poker, is also a big customer out out in the casino pit, mm-hmm. or for blackjack or baccarat or dice or whatever. You know, casinos try to keep those people happy. Yeah, I've been yeah. in games. I bet you have too, where uh, there's the, you know there's a long list, and a certain player walks in, and he gets right in the game. Oh yeah course and everybody's happy to get him into the game well anyway well, you're, we're, you're we're not, getting you're not so happy you're not so happy for one of the people on the list waiting for it oh yeah well that that yeah. goes without saying because they all going to cry about well what what happened to the must move table why don't we open another game why why does this not happen etc etc it's always always the case yeah mm. mason you know what i want to ask you about because we've been talking a lot about what's happening in the industry and the perception that the people have, uh, the perception that the pros have of what the sites are doing, what the managers of the sites are doing, what do they think, what do the recreational players think. And two plus two, the forums that you have and, and the material that you bring out to people is basically the information source for the poker players, for recreationals and professionals, and everybody working in the industry. Can you talk me through a bit more, how did this come about? Maybe how did the company start and what are you doing right now? And what is, what is the goal with this? Uh, the answer to your last question is I don't believe in goals. Okay. We, we can get to that at the end. It's actually an interesting story. Uh, I worked for the United States Census Bureau. And for the 1980s, the Census Bureau, this is the way it used to be, is, is sort of a small government agency that every 10 years would hire a quarter of a million people to, to do the census, the, the, the Centennial Census. So I got sent out west. And on my way out west, I drove, I stopped in Las Vegas. I was immediately fascinated with the games. And I moved to Southern California and discovered that 
forms of poker were legal and uh, also like like blackjack. And I, I have an academic background, so I would read and study things. So I began to buy books. And I began to have some uh, ideas of my own. And I had an idea about blackjack, which today is known as shuffle tracking. I called it card domination. And one day I was reading uh, one of these blackjack books. Uh, it was called Blackjack's Winning Formula by a man named Jerry Patterson. And he wrote something that sort of hinted at my, the ideas that I had. So I wrote him and I heard back from him. And just by coincidence, he was going to be giving a seminar the following week at a hotel that was about a mile and a half from where I lived. So he invited me to come meet with him. So I went and met with him, and we, after his little seminar, where he was trying to, you know, attract students, uh, we talked and we went over all, all this stuff. And it was very clear that I knew a lot more about it than he did. And so he started telling me that things like, uh, you know, you could become part of my blackjack team and I could help you get bankrolled, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he asked me if I would write up what I was, my ideas and send them to him. So I did all that. Of course, I never heard from him again. And Quick, after a few months, I realized that he was probably going to steal my ideas and it all be in his next book. Mm -hmm. So I knew about a magazine at that time called Gambling Times. So I wrote it up and I submitted it uh, to Gambling Times magazine. And in, it took them a while, but in August of 1983, they published my first article, which was called Card Domination. Uh, I don't know what it was called. Anyway, anyway, card domination was part of the, the title. And uh, they paid me $150 for this article. It's pretty good, mm -hmm. especially since it was kind of fun to write up. And by then, I had a whole bunch of other ideas about poker and blackjack. So I began to write for them. And they also had, at that time, uh, a little newspaper called Poker Player, which they distributed in the card rooms, and they pay me for that. So... I was working, well, by now I had left the Census Bureau and I had gone to work for Northrop Corporation. So I go to Northrop and I write these articles while I was sitting at my desk <laughs> and submit them and I, I would get paid. It was, it was pretty good. And I had, through the, doing this stuff, I had become friends with um, Mike Caro, who was a kind of a big name in poker at the time. And so we went down to Gambling Times Magazine offices, which were in Hollywood, Florida. And we met with a man named Stanley Sudikoff, who was the publisher and majority owner. And I ended up signing a contract with him to do a book. Now, this was in 1985. Well, by 1987, Gambling Times had gone bankrupt. And uh, they'd never published my book. So I had to hire an attorney and, and wrestle the book back. And so that put me not only in, in the writing business, 
on uh, poker and other forms of gambling, but it now put me in the publishing business because I self-published the book. So it's kind of, it it is kind of interesting. I had two events happen to me, which when they happened to me, I was very, very unhappy about. And with hindsight, I realized they're the best things that ever could have happened to me. So that, so 1987, I self-published three books. I was now in the publishing business. And during this time period, I'd become friends with David Sklansky. So he wanted to do a book in 1988, which was called Holden Poker, which we called Holden Poker for Advanced Players. So we wrote that. And then the next year, we wrote Seven Card Stud for Advanced Players. And then David had four other books, which which had been published by different publishers, who, who all went out of business or, or, or stopped publishing. Mm-hmm. And in 1989, he got the rights to those books back. One, one of those books was called Winning Poker at the time. And after that, we changed the title to The Theory of Poker. And we revamped it some. So all of, so David wanted me to take over all these books. So in 1989, all of a sudden, I, I was publisher of nine books. So that that's really how, how the publishing company worked. And, and I kept writing, too. And then uh, in 1996, I had a, a young lady at the time who had some marketing experience who was trying to help me with some marketing to, so we could have more book sales. And we had been accepted in 1996 by both uh, Borders and Barnes and Noble. They both agreed to carry our books. And these are... Borders is gone today, but they were a huge bookstore chain at the time. Barnes and Noble is still around. And I still have my initial letter from Barnes and Noble where they wanted to buy 10 copies of one of our books. They had 500 stores. So we quickly realized that if you call them up and said, and you can get a book buyer on the phone, which was hard to do. If you call them up and said, look, you know, we have the best books in our field. You should carry them in all your stores. The answer you would get is, well, every publisher says that. So it was suggested to me, by her, her name is Jessica Vecchioni, but, but she, she suggested to me that we get on the Internet and try to set up what was called a bulletin board. And a bulletin board was a form, and we could have people join us and we can discuss, you know, poker topics on the forum. And then we could go back to the, uh, these big bookstore chains and say, look, we have a following. Just look here. So in 1997, I, I knew somebody who knew how to do this. So we, we set up, uh, we set up two plus two dot, dot com. And we began with, with one form. And we thought that it was like 50, 50, we'd get a post. So today we're like 60 million posts later. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that's basically how the company began. And people would send me manuscripts on the publishing side, and I would look at them. And we accepted, you know, some of them and for publication, would work on them. And that's really been the way we operated. And the, the, the website sort of operates itself. I actually, you know, I post on there, but I really don't, don't do that much with it. Mm-hmm. Today, there's over 100 forms, and uh, we also have a internet poker magazine. And we used to have a, a podcast, which we're not, we don't have anymore. 
what the podcast did. I think it did 499 shows. So wow. it was very popular at one time. Mm. And, uh, you know, we just, at least for a while there, we, we really became a center for everything poker. It's, it's now much more fragmented. You know, other groups have come along and, and, and competed with us and other other topics, but it's 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 still a very successful website. So so, so that that's basically our story. We kind of I, I think uh, I've told this to a lot of people that if if you ever had some expert come in and he wanted to review the history of our company, he would look at this and he'd say, "Well, wow, you made this very good decision here, and you made this very good decision there." And, and the reality is, we just blundered into things. Mm-hmm. Just you know, you know, like for example, we started getting uh, on our poker forum. We started getting posts that didn't really have that much to do with uh, with poker strategy. So we, we said, "Oh, I would just start our second forum." So then we had two forums. We had the original forum and and then something called other topics, and it just kept splitting from there. And that's kind of, kind of the, the way it, the way it began. And we. Uh, we did some things I think helped it grow. The, the idea was uh, vigorous debate and a little bit of fun, and we tried to keep the insults down, which is hard to do. And, and I don't know, we just by accident hit the right formula that really grew. Yeah. And so and then the poker boom came along. When the poker boom came along, we, we were just people who were in the right place at the right time with a pretty good product. So, yeah, and you, I think you really contributed to the poker boom in a way because <clears throat> I remember the first time I started seriously considering playing poker, the first thing I did was buy um, Dan Harrington's book, or both of them, you know, or three three books even. There was two books and then uh, the Sir, practical part. Yeah. yeah. And that was my introduction to poker in many ways. Well, those books were, were a sensation. Uh, Harrington Holden Volume 1 came out in, in December of 2004. And, and the poker boom ha- had begun about a year and a half earlier. Mm-hmm. And some named players had put out stuff. wasn't very good. And when these books came along, people were really stunned as to how good they were. Oh, yeah. And so we had... We, we had huge sales and uh you know dan who was, who was a great player anyway became like a legendary name mm-hmm. and his his co-author bill Roberti, is a very very capable person so but between the two of them they, they produced <laughs> quite a manuscript i remember going over to california to meet with them a number of times we'd go over where the comma should go and try to challenge them on every concept Mm-hmm. just to make it better books just came out great oh yeah that was that was a, an incredible book that was, yeah that was a huge boost to our company too we were already very very successful and then we had this huge boost came along mm-hmm. and why did you st- stop the podcast you said you you did over 400 episodes and why we did, did 499 you... well we had sponsorship for a long time and that was mostly poker star sponsorship and then you know they, they went through changes and so they dropped the, the sponsorship and uh, 
we supported it for a while without sponsorship and then just decided we didn't really want to support it anymore. And uh, one of the original hosts had already retired. That was Mike Johnson, who was very, very good. And the other host had told us that uh, he just didn't have the kind of time that he used to have. So we just said, well, you know, all good things must pass. So we, we, uh, we, we just, just ended it. I see. I see. The reason I was asking, actually, because I feel like there are a lot of changes right now going on in the industry from so many aspects. I mean, we obviously already talked about, you know, what the sites are doing, how the economy seems to be changing, the poker economy, that is, but also the availability of material out there, right? We were, we just talked about the fantastic book by Dan Harrington, which was one of the kind back in its day. Right, and nowadays we're spoiled for information. Any game you want to play, there there are coaches out there. There's sites offering material. Some of, some of it is is better than other, but that's always the case, right? But well, pretty pretty much abundance of information, abundance of podcasts, abundance of everything. Well, the poker boom began in in uh, I guess May of two. 2003 it's when the, the original world poker tour shows got on tv and all of a sudden our book sales went crazy and then a couple of months later moneymaker wins the world series of poker and that was a lot of people think that the boom began with moneymaker it really didn't begin before him mm-hmm. but when he won the world series of poker it's like pouring gasoline on a fire oh yeah and uh and at that time there was really a shortage of poker books and, and, and information. So anyone who had put out a poker book all of a sudden saw, you know, very good sales. Mm. And then, you know, a couple of years later, some of these, the first, uh, I guess, video training sites, sites showed up. And we made a decision uh, not to compete with them, but to let them on our site. So we had all, you know, a lot of them would advertise, so we've all acted. So, uh, so, so we contributed to some of that, and and as you say t- today, there's you know a number of the of these type of sites, and there's all these coaches out there, and uh, so it's it's become very uh, in that sense it's become very fragmented. There's really not just one or two central sources you go to. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we're still around and we still have our books mm-hmm. and we still have a lot of discussion, you know, on our website. Yeah. And that is the key because that's something that is unlikely to change as, as fragmented as it is. But still, if you are looking for unbiased information about what's going on in the poker world, you're probably first looking into the forums. I mean, there's a lot of bias, of course, but at least it's not filtered in, in a way that, you know, there's going to be just one-sided well, opinion pushed by some marketing agenda. Well, we have an advantage. We've been so successful as a company. I mean, uh, we're not really holding to any advertiser. I mean, advertiser doesn't like what's appeared on the form. That's, 
if it's something you know of an insulting nature, we'll take it down. Mm. But with an opinion that that says that you know their poker side or their or whatever you know isn't that good, or their coaching isn't that good, it, it stays up. We are concerned that sometimes people will put things up and they'll say that this person is a scammer. We, we, we get a little bit concerned about that because it just could be someone who doesn't like that person. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, so we do try to watch that stuff a little bit more closely. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I'm, I'm just curious on how and what is going to happen to the industry because you know the, the problems that we discussed persist there are a lot of people trying to change things it looks good i'm overall quite optimistic about what's going to happen but i'm pretty sure we're going to see some changes well we've already gone over this but one they have to lower the rake and two they they have to do uh, appropriate things to get the pros out of these uh, lower limit games and, and create a better environment at the small stakes for the recreational players. I think, I think those are, are, are the two big things. Mm. And so, uh, you know, the, the multi-tabling is reducing that is, is a step in the, in that direction. Uh, things like, you know, the multiple re-entries, you know, into a tournaments are probably something that has to be looked at. And, yeah, absolutely. And it probably reduced. Mm. And, uh, you know, and, and so on. And uh, again, I just think it has to go back to people have to get a better understanding as to how all this works. And, and again, things based on uh, probability theory and, and poker is a game based on probability theory are often counterintuitive. Mm. You know, just the, uh, the short discussion we had on must move games. I mean, I think regardless of who is right, whether it's, it's you or I, that's something that a lot of that discussion would be beneficial to a lot of card room managers. Oh yeah, um, absolutely. You know, they, they would, they would see both, both sides of this issue and, uh, mm. and give them a better understanding as to, yeah. 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 And especially, you know, because the discussion that we had, we're not even in opposition here. We have, we're of the same opinion of basically it has to be fair and it has to benefit everybody in a way that we're not losing these people walking in. Right. So that one, of the, be- one, of, one of the important points, which, uh, should have brought should have brought in earlier is the idea that poker needs winning players this this is very different from any other casino game and what do winning players do they they help start games and they help keep games going and it's it's a a two-way street uh one of my books poker wrestling's volume two i have a paper in there that i wrote with donna harris she was uh, she's retired now, but she was a card room manager, you know, in, in Las Vegas, and we called it card room theory, a two way street. And and the the idea of the paper was we talked about those things that card rooms needed to do for the you know the the regular players, and those things the regular players needed to do for a card room. 
And in my experience, a lot of card rooms, you'll get an adversarial relationship between a lot of the regular players and the management. Mm. And when that happens, you know, the card room gets, go, goes down. And it just, uh, over time, it becomes a, a card room that's not as good as it used to be. And, but when both sides work together, you know, things become good. And I think, I think a lot of that, that's lost. And there's a, if anyone wants to, it's, it's in that book. If anyone wants to look at the specifics we had, some of the specifics probably don't apply anymore. It was written in the early 90s, but a lot of the stuff, you know, still does, does apply. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I, I think that's, just one of the many things that is lost in these, uh, you know, in, in today's is uh, too many of the, the the poker pros are the only thing they think about is maximizing their expectation, and they don't think about what's good for the card room. And maybe it would be a little bit better if they reduced their expectation a little bit, but in the short run but did things that were better for the card room. So in the long run, all this stuff is still there. Mm. And of course the same is true on the card room side. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that is the problem of, you know, how do you, because even for people, for players, let's say who are willing to reduce their expectation for the, let's call it the better good, you know, the bigger picture. If there are some bad actors in there, because like how many times that poker players try to boycott something just because they don't agree with the idea, and then the boycott always fails because well, some people are just gonna go for okay, I'm gonna maximize my own EV. Uh, everybody else is sitting out. I'm gonna go for it, right? And that that's the problem of getting this coordinated effort. Um, so a well, lot of the changes I, I, that. I think what has to happen there is you you have to have more communication between these players and the management. Yeah. I you agree. know, the management needs to understand why the players are unhappy. And the players need to understand why management can't do certain things and mm. what their their pressures are. I remember uh again, this goes back years ago, but I had a conversation with a man named Jim Albrecht. And at that time he was director of the poker room at Binion's Horseshoe. And he was also running the World Series of Poker. And one of the things he told me, I've never forgotten this, was that you go to a big major casino that has, you know, five or six poker tables. And then that upper management would get more complaints out of those five or six poker tables than they would from the rest of the casino put together. And so one of the things that did, it, it made upper management very negative towards poker. And so he explained to me that part of his job was to make sure that uh, these complaints stopped with him and didn't go to Jack Binion, who you know who was the uh, owner of Binion's Horseshoe at the time. And I, I think that that's an I a fact that most of these uh, professional type poker players aren't even aware of is is all the issues that come out of a poker room because of the the interaction between players and. Uh, you know, the short-term luck factor, mm-hmm. you know, and, and uh, you've named a couple of, you know, the, the list maybe aren't always kept as well as they should have been and, and, and so on. And, uh, you know, when that happens, it goes, uh, you know, right right on up to uh, 
you know, top top managers of the casino instead of being, you know, handled by the poker manager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure that a lot of the poker players are aware that a lot of the complaints are coming from the, from the poker floor because, well, let's face it, everybody sees the outspoken nature and the feeling of entitlement by a lot of people in in that field. That's unfortunate. But anyway, you know, the, the key point that you mentioned here is that the management should be in communication with the players and the players should voice their opinions because, well, there's going to, as you said, there's going to be 10 players, 10 opinions. But somewhere right. in so, there, there's the truth, so, right? Or, so or at least something acceptable. I think the communic- I think this is one of the big mistakes that gets made. Communication should be done more on an individual basis. In other words, um, the management should, should talk to you and, and hear what your opinions are. They shouldn't talk to you and, and, and nine other people all at the same time. Then you get people just yelling louder than the other. And, and uh, you, know, you know, let an individual explain to the, to the manager what he's unhappy with and, and why and what the fixes he thinks should be. And, and it's a much more thoughtful discussion that way. Of course, it's more time-consuming for the manager to have 10 meetings than, than to have one meeting. But I, I think it's the sort of thing that, that's missing in a lot of this poker stuff, whether it's uh, you know a small poker room or, or a big event like the World Series of Poker. Mm-hmm. Although I think this is getting better because I know that some of the bigger sites if we're talking about the online industry, are actually actively talking to individual players and asking for opinions. It remains to be seen how much those opinions are respected and such, but at least there is a dialogue, and that's important. And I assume that will happen, especially if the the profit is going down. Mm -hmm. If if, if they're having more and more problems, you know, maintaining the the, the profit and... uh, And, and, and the goodwill. I mean, good, good you know, if, if you're, well, we used to have a thing uh, with poker books. So this goes back years ago. But we used to object. This is when, when we could talk some to the, the book buyers from these big chains. But we used to object to bad books being on the, on the, on the shelf next to our books. We wanted all good books to be on the shelf next to our books, even if we weren't a publisher. Mm-hmm. And and the reason for that was, if you as a new new, you said as a new new player you bought uh, Harrington on Hold'em, and and you learned a lot from that book. So what did you do? You came back and you probably bought ten more books. Oh yeah. On the other hand, if you, if you would have bought a bad book, and there was a lot of bad books at that time, you would have said, "This is silly. I'm not going to read any more of these poker books." Mm-hmm. So it was actually advantageous to us to have strong competitors than it was to have bad competitors. And I think that that's still true today in some ways, just in poker in general. Mm-hmm. It, it's good for poker stars to have a competitor that's pushing them and doing things right. As then poker stars will respond in kind and, and, and push the competitor to do things right. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. The problem starts when some of the competitors are in a different league in terms of regulation. So they can do things that are borderline questionable. 
And that's not good for anyone because, well, it's hard to compete against. And at the same time, it can create a very different perception to some of the incoming players about what the industry is all about. Because some of the sites, let's face it, they don't really care about the bots. They don't really care about the collusion. They don't really care about anything apart from just basically taking the rake while they can. And that's very unfortunate. Well, I won't mention names, but we stopped the advertising on our site of a particular poker site because word had gotten out they just it was just full of odds mm-hmm. it actually cost us a substantial amount of money and now i understand that that site has has made a lot of effort to clean up the, the problems oh yeah yeah so, and it all started with because i i think i know which site you're talking about and it all started with people being outspoken and it was it was good yeah. you know but there are some sites which are even less regulated and more questionable than that one. And there doesn't seem to be much incentive on their part to clean up their act because, well, their their strategy is anyway, there's no longevity there because it doesn't seem like... Because they're breaking so many laws and they are still allowed to operate. Well, at least operate. I don't know how they're allowed to operate, but they are there. And oh, A lot of times... They might be breaking a, a law in the United States, but they're not really breaking a law in, let's say, Costa Rica, where they're operating from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there's another thing which has, I would say, weakened a great deal because of the Internet, and that is the fact that poker players tend to police their games. So... If if you're, uh, I'm just speaking generically here, but, but if you're a very good poker player and you're playing in a game, you watch the other people. Mm-hmm. You watch how the hands unfold. And if something uh, sort of funny happens, you'll notice it. And that's one of the main, main things that keep games honest. On the internet, now you're multi-tabling. And uh, you just can't... Uh, it just isn't kept up as well. But uh, players still do police the games on the internet. I mean, that's how some of the, the cheating scandals were uncovered. Mm-hmm. But the difference was a lot of damage was done before they were uncovered instead of being uncovered quickly. And, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a new cheating scandal now. Yeah, I don't want to mention the guy's name, but uh, apparently the thinking is he was, you know, playing in, in this poker room in California and he was getting maybe information on his cell phone as to what the cards were. And it seemed like that went on for a long time. And th- that almost says to me that the other players in the games are not, were not doing a good job policing it, which also says to me is that maybe some of them are in on it as well. Mm. Uh, that's pure speculation on my part. And uh, so I don't, I don't want to accuse anybody of anything, but you know, the, the, these things will happen if they're left unchecked. Yeah. Well, you know, people just default to trusting. It's usually a, a sane response to any situation. We we tend to believe that things are clean and nice, and so usually it, it, it's easier to get away with some of the some of the things. And actually, you know, all the cheating—well, not all the cheating, but some of the cheating scandals and some of the cheating techniques—was the topic of my some of my previous podcast episodes. And uh, the other week, I had 
Richard Turner, who is one of the, if not the best card magician in the world. Yeah, you know, and the things that he can do with a deck of cards, if you are in a game with where he is dealing or somehow participating with being able to manipulate the deck of cards, there is no way, even if you're paying closest attention, no way they will ever be able to tell. And you know, that's the unfortunate truth of if somebody is doing the cheating right, you will not be able to tell because... You know, all it matters is where the money is in the end of the day. You don't have to cheat every pot. If you do it selectively, yeah. go right, good luck game. trying to good you good know, luck trying hand, to figure it out. Yeah. One hand a week can, can be a lot of money at the end of the year. Exactly. exactly. About it. So anyway, Mason, you know what? I wanna say that first of all, the forums that you have are so important and I'm so grateful that we have this because this is going to be instrumental. This has been instrumental to how the poker industry evolves and I think it's, it's going to remain there. And another thing, your book, first of all, what a great idea. And I, I went through it, most of it. I didn't finish it yet, but what a fascinating read. Really, really interesting. I'm sure that the poker players are really going to enjoy it because it opens up, especially the guys who enjoy history like myself. I, I read some of these events. It's a refresher. Some of these events I haven't heard about before. And, you know, to look at those from a different perspective is refreshing, is fun, is interesting. And my hope is also that, you know, this might be one of those books which is going to be interesting for people outside of the poker industry and might make them want to try the game out. And my hope is just that when they try it out, they're going to like it as opposed to get disillusioned and say, well, this is, this is bullshit. I don't, I don't want to partake in this type of thing. Yeah, we have to get a lot more sold than we currently have. But uh, I, I, it could be a breakthrough book. It would, we'll be lucky. Uh, that's going to require some luck. But uh, it's just, to me, it is a, just a fascinating way to, to look at some of this stuff. And I know in the reading we did, I'd read about some topic and I would see something else mentioned casually. Mm -hmm. And then I'd go read that and bang, there would be a, a gambling event there. So mm -hmm. that's how some of the topics got in the book. I never even heard, heard of them until I started you know, working on this book. Mm -hmm. What was like one or some of the events that you found the most surprising that you never heard about before? Well, I wanted to read about Leon Trotsky. Mm -hmm. For some reason, I thought that he might be associated with gambling events. And, and we actually have a chapter on him. But reading about him, I discovered that uh, in 1919, a war began. My name was 1920. But a war began between Soviet Russia and Poland. Mm -hmm. now, after World War One, uh, Poland had become an independent country again. And the leader of Poland at the time, I, I, I can't say his name, can't pronounce his name very well, but he realized that Poland being located between uh, Germany and Russia was a problem. That eventually those two countries would rise up again and cause a lot of problems for Poland. And 
So he was <laughs> he was clearly right about that. And he had an idea, which was to create a confederation of some of the Eastern European states, like, like, like Poland and Ukraine, Latvia, Lithuania, and so on. And the problem was, was that what was then called Soviet Russia was already beginning to rise up. And Soviet Russia was uh, dominating the, the Ukraine at the time. They, they, uh, Trotsky had become the, the, the commissar of the army, so he was a he was the number two person after Lenin, and they had defeated uh, the White Russians in in the in the Civil War, and now they occupied Kudil Ukraine. So. What, what this guy decided to do was he decided that to create his confederation, the first thing they have to do would, would be to invade Ukraine. And, and, and he thought that the, the Ukrainians, you know, would, would then, uh, you know, rise up and, and support, support his army. So that was his gamble that, that the Ukrainians, you know, would support him. Well, it turned out the Ukrainians didn't like anybody. They didn't like the Russians and they didn't like the Poles. This was a war that took place, started, in, I think, in 1919, went for a year or so, year and a half, maybe. Mm. Did you ever hear of it? Yeah, I did. I did hear of no, it. You did. But, well, you're one of the few people who actually heard of this war. I'd never heard of it. Yeah, but and the problem is, because I, I haven't heard about some of the American Civil War things, because I'm from a different part of the world. So that, that's closer to home to me, right? Okay. Anyway, in this war, there was 400,000 casualties. I had never even heard of the thing. The major war, yeah, yeah, and uh, so, so so that's an example of one of the things that that made the book, mm. which uh, you know, you know, a year and a half ago when we started working on it, I had absolutely no knowledge of this, the American Civil War. Had a great deal of knowledge. I read a lot about that. Yeah, and you see, that's another good part about this book that I really enjoyed is that. Because like I said, some of the events are a refresher for me because both of the chapters that you mentioned about Trotsky and about the, the war of Poland against Ukraine and all that was a refresher to me. Whereas some of the chapters about the American Civil War is news, right? I know the general idea of what happened in the Civil War, but I, I didn't really ever bother reading up on, you know, such and such a battle and, and etc. But in this book, you have things from the Napoleonic Wars, you have things about Mexico, you have things about Russia, you have things about Middle East, about Israel, First World War, Second World War. There's so much in there. And, not, and it's not only war, it's not all military conflict, and that's it. But there's the kings and queens and and whatnot so i'm sure that people from different walks of life and different ge geographical locations are going to find a lot of things that are going to be interesting fascinating to them and it's overall an enjoyable fun read and the chapters are short so you know it's so easy to skim through and you know it's probably yeah, one of those books which you book. yeah it's definitely one of those books which you can pick up over and over again once in a while over over a drink and just you know have a little refresher of you know what happened in the world. Yeah, you know, speaking of the American Civil War, I don't quite understand why it just seemed to be a time where a lot of gambling went on, mm -hmm. and uh, something to do with the generals, and it has something to do with the nature of the events. But there's just a, it's a lot of stuff happened, 
in the Civil War, including just, you know, one of the sections in the book, uh, as you know, is called the, the Roll of Luck, where just mm -hmm. incredible lucky events occurred. And oh, yeah. so the, there's a Civil War event, which was very significant in history, which was just based on luck, pure luck. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you refer to the incident with the White House? And, and no, the I'm, storm and uh, uh, it, uh, no, that was before. Uh, that was the war, eighteen twelve. The, the incident I'm thinking of, right, right. Actually, there's a couple of uh, chapters of, of the roller locker. But the incident I'm thinking of right now was the finding of three cigars. Oh yeah, that one. Yeah. I mean, I mean, no one's going to know. What I'm talking about to, to explain it, but but early in the Civil War, uh, again, the the Confederate army under Robert E. Lee had been very successful. So they moved into Maryland, which was part of the, the North. And the Union Army was again commanded by uh, George McClellan. And they were trying to chase Lee and figure out, but they didn't really know exactly where he was. And then one day, uh, some soldiers who were part of the, this huge army chasing Lee's army were camped out in a meadow. and they, and. And they happened to they just happened to camp in a place that some Confederate soldiers had camped in a couple of days earlier. And they mm -hmm. found three cigars with a piece of paper wrapped around them. And when they picked up, up cigars and unwrapped the paper, they realized they had just discovered Robert E. Lee's orders, which had been uh, wrapped around these cigars and were being sent to another general and had been lost. Well, that made all the difference in the world. Now, George McClellan knew where Lee was, and, and he knew that Lee's army had been divided, so he now had a chance to stop him. And that led to the Battle of Antietam. And uh, and, and that did stop the, uh, the, the the advance of Lee's army. He had to retreat back into uh, back into Virginia. And that, and this, it was really a, the, the battle was actually a tactical draw, but it was a strategic defeat for the South. And one of the things the battle did was it allowed Lincoln to announce the Emancipation Proclamation. So these scars weren't found. Uh, you know, the freedom for the slaves might have might not have come. And uh, I mean, I mean, you just wonder how these things happen. And yet there it was. Mm -hmm. the, yeah. the thing you're mentioning was in the War of 1812, the, the, the British landed uh, south of the American capital, Washington, D.C. They marched towards the capital. They, they broke through the defenses, and they burnt the, the capital to the ground. Mm. And then a couple of weeks later, uh, another British force attacked the city of Baltimore and was stopped. Well, one of the things that happened was when the army that had burnt Washington, D.C. to the ground. That night, they were, the Americans had all fled, and the, the British were now occupying Washington, Washington, the city of Washington. And a storm hit, but it was a storm like, like no other storm. Uh, and it included maybe as many as three tornadoes, but definitely included one. And uh, one of the tornadoes lifted up a couple of can cannons and uh, dropped upon some of the British soldiers. And they actually had more casualties from the storm than they, they did from, from the battles. But the worst thing that happened was the army was wrecked. All their equipment was destroyed. 
So this army then had to, all they could do is march back to their ships and leave. And so the British force that then attacked Baltimore a couple of weeks later was not as strong as it could have been. And that's when, when the United States prevailed. That didn't happen. The British might have split the United States into two, and you might have today you might have more than one country instead of just one United States. Mm-hmm. So, so it was a rainstorm, which could have been a hurricane, actually uh, saved the United States. And what, what's interesting about it is Washington, D.C. is not a place that tornadoes hit, and it's not a place that hurricanes hit. And yet there, there it was on maybe its most crucial night in its history that that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And speaking of storms, I also found the, the, the story about uh, the Japanese and the Mongols where the uh, Mongols yeah. were coming in and they were wiped out by, by the huge storm and which yeah. sort of created uh, the perception in the Japanese mind that they are protected by whatever the higher power. And yeah, that perception him. held all the way up till the end of the World War II where they felt invincible and, you know. Right. right. In fact, the, the word kamikaze means divine wind. Mm-hmm. And that was what these storms were called by the... Japanese people at the time as the violin. Right. It's just very, very interesting what way a lot of these, these things come together and how either uh, my favorite story in the book, actually this couple of them, I've told this on a couple of the podcasts was, this, was, was well, first, you know who Jack Johnson was? Um, Jack Johnson, that's the, the boxer or who are we right. talking Jack about? Johnson in 1909 was a heavyweight champion in the world. Right. And he's African-American, so he's the first black heavyweight champion. And in 1909, the United States was really a very racist country, like most of the world was. Mm. So he was not only easily the hate, most hated person in the United States, he's probably the most hated person in the world. And he signed to fight a man named Stanley Ketchell, who was middleweight champion. And so Ketchell's a very legitimate fighter. The problem is... The fight's still a mismatch. Johnson's 40 or 50 pounds heavier than he is, much, much taller and everything. So and there's even, I don't have it in the book, but there's even a publicity picture where, where Ketchell has a, apparently he's standing on, he has platform shoes on, mm-hmm. and he has a full-length coat that comes down to the ground. And Johnson's in his boxing attire, so this makes Ketchell look like almost the same size as Johnson. Anyway, the fight's a mismatch. So they make a deal, and the deal is uh, that Johnson will carry him for 20 rounds. And I, I've seen it both ways, that it was supposed to be a 20-round fight or, or that the number of rounds was unlimited, but he would carry him for at least 20. And it was done for two reasons. One was to preserve Ketchell's reputation as a legitimate fighter, and the other was uh, there were silent movie theaters in those days. So, so the the idea was that the fight went a lot number enough rounds, people would then go to the silent movie theaters to watch the fight. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Ketchell had other ideas. So in the twelfth round, he took his great gamble and he hauled off and hit Johnson as hard as he could. And he caught Johnson by surprise. We have a real nice picture of Johnson going down, and Johnson hopped right up. Uh, well, the descriptions I read was he hopped up very annoyed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he ran to where Ketchell was standing, 
he hit him so hard, he knocked him out cold. So, so we, we, there's another picture I have in the book, which is 10 seconds later. Ketchell is, is out cold on, on the uh, canvas. And uh, it took, so supposedly took several minutes to revive Ketchell. And the films of the fight clearly show Johnson walking over to the robes, scraping his uh, teeth out of his gloves. And after the fight, a sports writer asked Johnson what it felt like when he was knocked down. And Johnson said, he double-crossed me and I made him pay. Anyway, this chapter is in the foolish gamble section because when gambling, you have to be a good judge of your adversary. And uh, Ketchell obviously was not. He, he he didn't understand that that he just didn't have the power to hurt Johnson, no matter what. And uh, so it was a very foolish gambler gamble, and he paid uh, significantly for it. Mm-hmm. And it's also clear that the, the fight was was probably fixed because when Johnson decided to hit him, it was over. Right, so right. You could have done yeah. that to him any time in the fight. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Hmm. I have, I have Interesting. Another story. Interesting. Yeah. I have another story I've been telling a little about, which I, I really like out of the book. It actually comes out of another book uh, called The Knights of the Green Cloth. It was written by a, a man named uh, I think it's Richard D. Armand. He was a University of Oklahoma professor, and it's a history of the gamblers of the Old West. So anybody wants to read a, a, a book that reads more like fiction than in real life, this is the book to read. All these people are shooting each other up and everything. Anyway, it has a story in there about Wyatt Earp. And uh, what most people do, most people remember Wyatt Earp. Do you know who he was? No. Yeah, any familiarity? No. Yeah, well, Wyatt Earp is, is remembered today as one of the great lawmen of the Old West. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he was involved in the shootout, in the famous shootout at the OK Corral. But in reality, Wyatt Earp was, uh, was really mostly a casino owner. And what, and, and what he would do is uh, wherever there's a new mining boom, he would go to the new mining town and he would try to make a deal with a saloon owner and they'd set up a couple of faro tables and faro was the, was the big table game back then mm-hmm. and then he would hire dealers and they'd run these games so it was uh the year i don't remember the year but it was after the his time in tombstone and, and the okay corral shootout he, he he went to a place called gunniston uh, colorado which was now the new mining boom town. He made his deal. He had his barrel tables. And then one day in the town came a man named Ike Morris. Well, Ike Morris was, according the quote from the book is, he's known as a mean man with a gun. Mm-hmm. So Ike Morris comes into town. He happens to go to the appropriate saloon, decides to play some faro. And he sits down at the table, promptly loses his money. So as soon as he, he does this, he, he starts accusing the dealers of cheating. So the dealer says something like, look, I only work here. I work for wages. Uh, you'll, you know, you'll have to talk to Mr. Earp. He'll be in later in the afternoon. So Morris says, okay, I'll be in the bar waiting for him. So Morris, I guess he goes in the bar and he starts shooting his mouth off. So 
as time goes on, a lot of people show up because they think there might be some real trouble between these two tough guys. So Earp comes in a, a couple hours later as on schedule. And one of the things about Wyatt Earp, apparently nothing ever bothered him. He never got, he never lost his cool, never got, got upset about anything. So Morris immediately accused him of cheating. Earp heard him out. And Earp said, well, let me go check everything out. So Earp goes uh, back to, you know, the gambling room where the foul tables are set up. He checks everything out. He talks to the dealers and becomes convinced that there's no way this guy was cheated. So it comes, every time I tell the story, it's just great. He comes out of the gambling room, he goes to the bar and he says to Morris, he says, well, he says, I looked over everything and you're right, you were cheated. And because of that, I should give you your money back. However, you're known as kind of a tough guy. And if I give you your money back, people are going to think you made me do it. Therefore, I'm going to keep it. And this is a huge gamble. What's happened here is he needs to get rid of Morris because he knows if, if he doesn't give Morris his money back or he tells Morris he wasn't cheated, Morris will hang around for days, tell everybody he can how he was cheated, be bad for business. So Earp has just humiliated this guy. And Earp has just said to the guy, pull your gun or get out of town. And the gamble is that Morris might pull his gun and shoot him. But but Earp gambled that he understood the guy and he, and, he, and he knew him right and that he would back down. And sure enough, Morris backed down, offered to buy everybody drinks and left town in a day or so. Mm. So that, to me, that's it's one of the, the best gambling stories I've ever run into. Mm. Yeah, what makes it so great is that the guy left the town, right? It could have gone the other way. We he wouldn't have heard the story. He just could have pulled his gun and shot. And, that would yeah. have been, uh, and then that story wouldn't be wouldn't be told. That's, yeah, yeah, it could have been the end of her. Yeah. Yeah. That that's the problem with a lot of these stories, if we think back, that you know, these minor events or seemingly minor events at the time skewed the whole outcome so much. And now we know about these events, whereas it wouldn't have happened. We would never have heard about it. Basically, right. the the selection bias. Well, that's that's part of it, and that's human nature. You know, we we remember our bad beats. We remember, you know, all sorts of stories that stand out for us on an emotional level. But um, yeah. Oh well, Mason. Listen, I want to say. Thank you for your time. Uh, it was yeah, thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely, it was so so interesting, and I think we covered so many topics. And I really hope that people are going to go out and buy the book because uh, it is a great read. It's a fun read. It's it's really entertaining, and it's like I said, it's one of those which you're probably going to go back once in a while. I know I will, and uh, you know it's an easy, fun read, and um, definitely a lot of refresher if somebody's interested in the historic events there there's so much in there and uh, you know you selected the good balance of things from all around the world you know you covered well, well i had a very had a very good co-author to work with he was a real help in, in all that stuff and uh next time you're in las vegas contact me we'll bring you out to the office for, have lunch one day oh absolutely i'd love that yeah i'm i'm definitely not going this year 
I mean, that's probably yeah. not no surprise. Yeah, it's not not easy to to go over Hopefully. the ocean nowadays. Hopefully. But whenever things get better, I'm I'm looking forward to. I I sort of I actually miss playing live poker. You know, it's uh, I didn't I didn't think I would, but now that it's taken away from me, I definitely do. Uh, I've yeah. been talking to you. Thanks again for having me. It's been uh, it's been my pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to get a regular email from me personally where I share my key takeaways from each latest episode, go to runchexpodcast.com and subscribe to my newsletter. And of course, I would really appreciate if you subscribe to my channel on YouTube and rate my podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or any other platform where you normally listen to your podcasts. This really helps.